0: This podcast, number 809, with Jamie Reno, is brought to you by Alan Thomas-Brown, author of a new book entitled Dancing Through Life, Indulge Your Dreams and Pursue Life's Possibilities. Please listen to Alan and Greg as they talk about life and wisdom. In this interview, Alan provides insights about life with his wisdom of over 80 years of being on this planet. If you want to learn how to truly live life and remove the fear, this interesting interview is for you. To learn more about Alan and his book, please visit his website at www.alanthomasbrown.com That's A-L-L-E-N-T-H-O-M-A-S. B R O W N dot Thanks for listening. And now please stand by for Greg's interview with best selling author Jamie Reno about his book, Hope Begins in the Dark. Welcome
1: back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice, and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I have Jamie Remo calling me in from San Diego. Jamie, Reno, how are you doing Reno. this morning? Reno. Yes. Yeah, just like the city, Reno, which I've been to a few times on LLS bike rides.
2: (laughs) Oh, good for you.
1: Had to go there to do the Tahoe bike rides many times, so we had to fly
2: into there. We have a Um, few connections, Greg. You know, that's great.
1: Yeah, we we have a lot of connections. So, Jamie, it's a pleasure having you on. He's been a friend, an associate, a colleague, um, and a man who I really knew through Leukemia Society, Uh, Because that's how we got connected. And we're going to talk a little bit about you, uh, Jamie, just so that our listeners know who you are and what you're about, um, and all the writing that you've done, and the upcoming book that you've got coming out as well, um, so that they know. But Jamie, he calls himself a renaissance man. He's modified by compassion, by looking beyond politics, and radical and social economics and national boundaries to find a common ground. And I will say that is uh, the essence of Jamie. He's one of America's most accomplished journal- journalists. He is also a best-selling author, an award-winning singer, songwriter, three-time cancer survivor. Uh, that's probably his biggest accomplishment, to be honest with you, is just wow. doing that and an advocate for cancer patients and their families. He's a national correspondent for 20 years with Newsweek, where he covered the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and 9-11, the White House, cancer breakthroughs, China and more. He's also edited and written for such publications as the New York Times, Sports Illustrated, International Business Times, Yahoo Finance, Daily Beast, People Entertainment, Los Angeles Times, USA Today, and the list goes on and on because he's a writer. That's what he's good at. He's won more than 150 writing awards uh, for the Society of Professional Journalists, Press Club, and is a four-time winner of the Press Club Top Best of Show Award. Jamie is currently an investigative reporter for Healthline, uh, America's largest news site with 90 million monthly
2: visitors. Health news, largest health news site.
1: Health News yeah. site. Did yeah. I say something different? Oh, yeah. You
2: just didn't say health. Okay. It's not the largest <laughs> site overall. I wish, but we're still doing pretty well.
1: I <laughs> uh, recognized for his coverage of Americans veterans. Uh, Jamie is reporting uh, from the highlighted and improved the lives of former warriors suffering from PTSD. And we're going to talk about an article which just recently came out. Uh, that Jamie wrote this morning, actually, uh, that just hit and has gone crazy. Uh, As we said, Jamie was diagnosed with stage 4 non-Hodgkin's lymphoma at 23 years old, Um, and he's one of the lucky ones. He's been able to battle it and get through it. Uh, Jamie was the survivor of the year by the Greg Wolf Fund, an organization dedicated to funding research in cancer against blood cancers and helping patients and their families. Um, Jamie, you are really the man of the hour. And um, I think it'd be best for our listeners really to understand you more because you are the Renaissance man. You're a songwriter. You're a journalist. You're a three-time cancer survivor. You've done it all. I think the best way to do this is just to tell our listeners a little bit about your background. How'd you get started as a journalist and the journey to really writing your first book? Because we're going to now talk about your second book, which is about ready to come out uh, shortly here.
2: Well, you know, I've wanted to be a journalist since college. I studied journalism and political science at San Diego State. Um, You know, so that road really began in college. I was on the debate team and I started uh, really following the news and I started Developing a passion for writing about current events, and that sort of translated into a lifelong passion for journalism. I, I so after after college, I freelanced a, a lot. I wrote for a number of national magazines, living in San Diego, and then I was hired at the San Diego Union-Tribune. For a, I was there for a few years, and then People Magazine uh, hired me, and then uh, my dream job, which I wanted since college, uh, Newsweek hired me and I was actually with Newsweek for 23 years. Um, I was diagnosed with cancer at age 35. Um, and that, you know, obviously that changes your life in many ways. Um, and that really, that cancer experience really sort of changed my priorities, both personally and professionally. You Mm -hmm. know, I, I still was a journalist and I still am a journalist. But, I, you know, I really sort of reprioritized, you know, I wanted—I I decided I wanted to work at home and I wanted to be spend more time with my family. But at the same time, I also wanted to help my fellow cancer patients.
1: Well, you wrote your first book. And how many years ago was that when you first came you know, out
2: with your first book? Well, the first edition of Hope Begins in the Dark, which was my first book, which is actually a book about lymphoma survivors, how they survived, what their treatment options were, what... You know how the emotional, how they dealt with the emotional part of being diagnosed with cancer. That the first edition came out about 15 years ago, and that book has been, if I may say that, I've, I've, I'm told it's the number one book ever written about lymphoma. We're in like 12 countries, and we've had four uh, different editions. Every every edition is completely new, mm-hmm. uh, new survivor stories, and of course new treatments. And that's really what I'm focused on. So, Greg, I know you know this, there's so many exciting new ca- cancer treatments with right. immunotherapies and just so much going on. Uh, it really is, um, I think that really this is the golden era of cancer research. And a lot of it, interestingly enough, and fortunately enough for me, is happening in blood cancers. You know, That seems to be the most malleable, the easiest kind of cancer for many of these immunotherapies to work because lymphoma and leukemia are related to your immune system directly. So,
1: well, it was natural for you to fall in as spot as an advocate, but as an advocate, um, you know, tell us a little bit about that because literally you today uh, put a lot of your time in advocacy and I know our listeners know what the word advocacy means, but for you, what does advocacy mean? And how do you play a role with LLS and all of these other organizations that are doing research today and helping cancer patients?
2: That's a great question. Thanks, Greg. I, I think I would describe it for me because I do wear these other hats: advocacy, uh, journalism is a big journalism and authorship are two big components of my advocacy. And for me, what advocacy means is education. It's basically because to me, when you have information, you have hope. Um, so I try to provide both to patients and their families. So advocacy for me, a, a large portion of it anyway, Greg, is is to uh, tell, tell patients exactly what's going on, let them know about clinical trials. Because I'm alive because I enrolled in a clinical trial in 1999. Um, seems like a long time ago now, but... I'm alive because I, I took a, an educated risk. You know, my, my oncologist, my original oncologist, who's not my oncologist anymore, um, he wanted me to do chemotherapy again. But it had only given me like two and a half years of remission. And I said, no, I don't think that's, there's no reason for me to do chemo again because it's only going to give me even less than the first one gave me right. in terms of remission. Right. So I picked, I, I chose to do a radio immunotherapy, an experimental drug, but it was in a phase three clinical trial, which means there was already a lot of data and the data was really powerful and positive. So I said, I'm going to go that route instead. So I enrolled in a clinical trial and it gave me many years, many years of remission. I'm technically out of remission now, Greg, I have uh, lymph nodes in my abdomen, but they're not growing. So we're in what we call watch and wait. I, we're not really doing anything. I'm just living my life hoping that they never grow. There's no reason to touch them now, you know, because right. I'm, I'm living my life mostly Norm- normally. Very yeah.
1: normally, yeah.
2: Mostly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, as normal as my life ever was, right?
1: <laughs> well, I know for my son even with um, CML, chronic myelogenous leukemia, yes. um, right at the time he got it, uh, LLS was supporting the Gleevec. Mm-hmm. And Gleevec had not... Um, it was released and it had been used and it was still trial form when he started taking it and you know, it was his choice, just like you, same, similar story. I went to the oncologist. They said, Hey, look, you can come to the city of hope. You're going to sit here. You're going to be radiated with the, you know, radio treatments, or I should say, um, what am I saying? Radiation, radiation treatments. It wasn't radiation treatments. It was chemotherapy. They said, all your hair is going to fall out. He was 21 years old. Uh, Mm -hmm. and you know, this is going to be your life and, and, uh, we will get rid of the cancer. We will try to. And then they said, but then there's this pill called Gleevec and you could try this pill and all you have to do is swallow a pill. And so we were driving home. This is a really cute story. He's 21. So he gets to make his own decisions. And I said, Hey, Sean, what do you want to do? And he says, dad, I've researched everything about this Gleevec. He's, you know, he's a brainiac. And he says, I'm going down the Glee route. Uh, he said, it's much less risk. And I, and I think that, you know, and to this day, he's still on a, a drug called Sprycel. It's a different drug right. and so many iterations of them, but, yep. um, and it's working,
2: you know, that's great. And he was 21. Mm-hmm. That's, he sounds like a very mature to come to that decision at that age is amazing. That's amazing.
1: Well, not without a lot of help. And I'll tell you, the internet helped him a lot. And he got in a bunch of groups. So I talk about advocacy. He was uh, emailing people all around the world that were close to his age, because CML was pretty interesting to get at 21. Most people, it happens in their 50s or 60s, whatever. So he was trying to reach out to as many people in his age group. Um, And again, not to take up this interview, but one day I came home and he he had been home from school and he was sitting on the stair steps crying. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow. And he goes, you know, cause I didn't know who he was communicating with on the internet. Yeah. He goes, one of my best buddies on the internet died from CML. Mm-hmm. And this guy was 27 or something. And he was in Australia. Mm-hmm. And I think the impact it had was, you know, like you say you grow up really fast if you yeah. get something like that young And you become very mature and you see your life in a completely different way spiritually. Uh, You have a spiritual awakening. No other way about it. Yeah. So you tell us about your uh, global cancer patient initiative for 2021. You have one. And then we're going to move to the question because I told our listeners that we would about this recent article that just broke uh, yesterday. Okay. Sure.
2: Well, I've got actually several initiatives, Greg, and I'll just real quickly tell our, our viewers um, and listeners that uh, I've sort of created a new business model. And what I do, and I know you know a little bit about this, of course. Um, so what I do is I partner with nonprofit organizations. Uh, I've, I've partnered with about 11 or 12 now, all, mostly cancer organizations, all reputable and well-respected. Well and what I do is I partner with them. And then we seek educational grants from pharmaceutical benefactors and other benefactors. These are all educational initiatives and it's, it's become a really effective business model. I've been able to do books and my music, which is another part of my life, the singer songwriter, guitar player. Um, and all of it is attached in one way or another to cancer awareness and uh, education and so this coming year, later this year and next year, I'm working on a major China, a project in China, where it's a, it's a friendship project between our two countries. Nothing, it's apolitical. It's all about helping their blood cancer patients and giving them a book to read, just as I've done uh, with my American book, my Hope book. This is a totally separate book about and for China, because lymphoma in China is, is growing at a rapid rate, especially in the cities. And yet, they have, a, they have a biotech boom in China. It's amazing. And there's all kinds of alliances between U.S. and China biotech, which is not getting very much press, but it's a terrifically positive story right now amid all the political stuff that we're dealing with. Um, it's a positive story between our two countries. And what, what they don't have on the same level as the United States at this point, the science is there, but what they don't have is – our, our old friend, patient advocacy. That's just beginning in China. Ah. So it's a big project. I'm already working with several Chinese pharmaceutical companies and most of these companies, Greg, they actually work with us pharma. They have trial. Some of them have trials in both countries. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not well known, but it's a great, it's a great positive for our future. I know, of course, the COVID thing is has changed every paradigm, but, this is still you know people with cancer still have cancer and i've been writing a lot you know as you know i told you i write for healthline now and I'm, a lot of what i'm covering is is covid and cancer and the really frightening sort of uh, combination yeah uh, cancer patients are are very reluctant now to go to go into a cancer hospital or a hospital in general right because they're afraid of getting the of the virus Yeah,
1: And it's in it. I'm not certain that, you know, I mean, everybody's running ads now. You see them on TV, Sharp and local hospitals. Hey, it's safe to come in. And and I believe that it is. I just believe that there's so much fear around this disease that, um, you know, know, it's a catch 22. Well, if I have cancer, I got to come in and get the treatments or, oh, I'm afraid to go in and get the treatment. So they really need to be encouraged to do that. So tell us if Absolutely. you would. They, have, they
2: are safe. They, it's actually safer than a grocery store, believe oh, it or not.
1: Totally, totally. Yes. I'm sure that yes. it is much cleaner than a grocery store.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> um,
1: so let's talk about, you had an article that broke this morning or yesterday, right. you said and it's already had you know a million hits or whatever. I'm not sure if it's a million,
2: but it's, it's doing well. Yeah.
1: yeah. So tell the listeners about that because it's an interesting uh, story. And it also sure. – exemplifies, you know, your professionalism as a journalist in uh, the way you write. You. And uh, I think we can put a link to it in the blog when we post this as well.
2: Well, thank you very much. Um, so I, I was at Newsweek for 23 years, as I mentioned, and my, beat, my main beat there for many years was covering our troops and our veterans, uh, Covered the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I was the lead reporter on a cover story we called it failing our wounded. It was about the shortcomings that they were suffering our, our troops and our veterans when they came home and retreated either at Walter Reed and then in the VA system, veterans affairs system, veterans administration. So, you know, it was veterans affairs, not a veterans, veterans administration is the old title. Sorry. Um, sometimes I go old school. Um, okay. So um, I've covered veterans for many years. One of our biggest stories was, This cover story with Marissa Strzok, this amazing young woman who had was in a combat situation in in Iraq and lost both of her legs. She she was on a Humvee and they ran over an explosive device, an IED, and her two team members were instantly killed. And she was put into thrown into a coma for nearly a month. Uh, She wasn't expected to live, but she did live, and she's she's led an amazing life since. She posed for the cover of this, of this uh, story. And so all these years later, and I've kept in touch with Marissa for over the years. She's a, just a dynamic young lady. I really have such great respect for her. And she's funny too. She's a great, a great person and really fun to talk to Mm -hmm. and has an amazing attitude given what she's been through. So when Tucker Carlson on Fox news, uh, trashed Tammy Duckworth, the U S Senator from Illinois, who also lost both legs in Iraq. Um, I immediately thought, "Wow, this is not right." I mean, whatever your politics are, that just is not right. So I contacted Marissa, and then that sort of snowballed, and we started hearing from more and more women veterans um, around the country who were who took who took Tucker's comments personally. Mm-hmm. You know, mm. he called Tammy Duckworth a coward. You know, and he's never served in the military. You know, whatever you think of Tucker, these, these were not these were not uh, fair or accurate, uh, criticisms. It just, they were just ridiculous. Um, whatever, again, whatever your politics are, you don't disrespect uh, our veterans that way. It's just wrong. So I got, you know, I got on my, you know, my journalism hat and started calling around and we ended up doing an interview with Marissa and she's not a political person, by the way, she's not really politically uh, oriented. Um, but she was happy to talk to me about this because she really took it personally you know, this comment was uh, because they were actually at Walter Reed rehabilitating from their, from their injuries at the same time. Mm -hmm. So Tammy Duckworth was always a hero of Marissa and vice versa. They, you know, there's mutual respect among, among women veterans, especially ones who have, you know, lost their legs. I mean, just unthinkable, unthinkable, you know, but they've both had very productive lives, um, you know, post, post war. And it's, it's a testament to both of them. And so the story ran, I was posted this morning on Yahoo News. And interestingly for me, um, Yahoo, uh, several of my top editors and colleagues from Newsweek are now at Yahoo News. Um, Danny Kleidman and Mike Isakoff and uh, Jerry Adler. Some of the really uh, stellar people that were at Newsweek are now at Yahoo. And I'm, I'm still writing for them. Um, And I still support Newsweek too, but you know, it's just great to work with some of my old colleagues on some of these stories because you know the war war for these veterans never stops. I mean, they're they're dealing with these things every day. You know, they're mm-hmm. going to the VA, they're dealing with pain, they're dealing with PTSD, which of course is post traumatic stress. They're dealing with uh, traumatic brain injuries, um, obviously loss of limbs. You name it. You know, it's not something when they come home it's over. It keeps yeah. it just keeps going. So yeah. You know, I'm glad to be able to write stories
1: like that. Well, it's good. And and it's, uh, again, I say it exemplifies your uh, unbiasedness as a journalist, the kind of research you do and you put out there. And obviously, who's ever looking at what you wrote, um, they're looking to edit that as well and say, hey, you know, how good a job did did, uh, Jamie do to get this article put together? And I just want to thank you for doing that. Now, you've got an upcoming book. It's a forthcoming edition of Hope. Uh, Begins in the dark,
0: yes.
1: Um, And uh, we got the book jacket, and we're going to post the book jacket with this post. Um, Tell our listeners a little bit about that. Um, Sure. Why? Why a new edition? Um, What's new? Obviously, there's been a lot happened in medicine and research since you know you were diagnosed, since my son's diagnosed. Uh, Tell the listeners a little bit about the the new book and what
2: you hope to accomplish. Sure. So, Greg, this one is. You know they've all been largely about survivors, but this edition really is we have new survivor stories as well, but this edition really puts a spotlight on the on the science because they're and what I'm doing is i'm I'm dumbing it down just enough so that uh, the reg- regular folks out there like me who are not scientists can appreciate and understand it, but that the oncologists and the scientists can still appreciate the book. Mm-hmm. so we we are seeing as I said before, a real revolution, a real renaissance in uh, cancer treatment, especially blood cancers. Um, you know, we're seeing these immunotherapies, which actually, you know, there have been sort of outliers for a hundred years, uh, scientists insisting that, yes, we do have an immune system, and, yes, we can, we can find ways to use it against disease. But those those scientists were really punished for their 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 views. They were really considered flaky. They weren't considered mainstream. It took literally a century for this to become mainstream, and now it is arguably the dominant uh, the dominant strain now in new cancer research and new cancer treatments, both in trials and approved treatments. Drugs like Keytruda, for example, and drugs like um, you know, so many drugs in the blood cancer realm. Um, it's just, you know, the CAR-T cell immunotherapies, which would, which are, the, you know, basically, basically they re-engineer your T cells and put them back in your body, and then they go after the cancer. But they don't go after healthy cells, mm-hmm. which makes it completely different than chemotherapy, which, as you know, and your son knows, um, it, it kills healthy cells too.
1: Yeah, it's you not know, targeted.
2: Too. It's well, some targeted.
1: chemo, I take it back. Some chemo is targeted. They, true, they, they true. can, you know, people with brain cancer and that kind of thing, they, they yeah. can do that. And, you know, people with geoblastoma now, they can extend yeah. their life a bit, but yeah. they do recognize that it's an 18-month to 24-month journey. Yes. Uh, we just had a, a woman journalist on from Fox 5 News whose uh, husband died of it um, and wrote a book a mm-hmm. really compelling book about the, about Sean's journey. Uh, it's Maria Cubain. You might know her from Fox 5 News up in Los Angeles. Yeah, sure. She's, been, she's kind of been on the air there for over 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, she was to- talking in the interview that we did about uh, the cancer and Sean's uh, journey with it. Um, that, you know, it is something they can extend it. They, they can't extend so much the quality of one's life. Yeah. Can extend the life.
2: Right? Yeah. Yeah. And chemo, like like you said, there are some that are targeted, but there are also a whole other class of what they do call targeted therapies, um, which, you know, again, this whole new way of looking at cancer treatment where you don't have to poison the Everything, anymore. yeah. You yeah, know? the whole body. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah.
1: and, you know, one of the things that I want to get to, and I make sure we have time to do that, you've written – uh, in Healthline, and that's mm-hmm. where you're really big is Healthline. They can go in there and they can. My um, listeners can see your articles, yep. and uh, we will put a link to that. But really, about this situation we were talking about earlier with cancer and COVID, yep. right? Yep. Um, tell us about you know your coverage um, and these people who are immunocompromised, right? Because. Yep the reality is every cancer patient out there that's immune immunocompromised is going, Oh my God, COVID worst yeah. thing that could happen. And like we said a minute ago, they're fearing going into the, these facilities, right. but like we've been told the facilities are cleaner than most of the other places. No. I don't think they should be skipping their, their treatments over the fact no. that COVID's there, but I bet you you're finding some that are.
2: Sadly, a lot, a lot of them are. They're they're all considering whether or not to go in, but and some of them are not going in, and that's unfortunate. I, I totally understand that yeah. that fear. I have the same fear of this virus. We, we all have this fear of this virus to varying degrees. But um, as as we mentioned earlier, absolutely, these cancer hospitals, especially, are are pl- probably one of the safest places you can where you can be, which sounds counterintuitive, but it's really true. You know, it's really true that going there is probably the best thing you can do because um, they are so conscientious about checking your temperature and and cleaning and and wearing masks and wearing, you know, more than just the mask. Obviously, the the staff are completely covered. Um, It's very safe. And I'm not you know, you can't ever guarantee anything right now with covid. But I, I urge my fellow cancer patients and, you know, survivors to don't miss appointments, don't stay home, and, you know, you have to keep this moving. And, again, um, these hospitals are clean. Um, I've, I've been there since, and I, I don't spend a lot of time in cancer hospitals when I if I don't have to because <laughs> I've spent enough time as a patient. Um, but I've, I've, I've been there at Morris Cancer Center in San Diego, UC San Diego
1: yeah you see my my hospital yeah
2: and they're ter- tremendous people i write a lot about their 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 treatments and their um, research right um, and they you know they urge me to tell my audience of cancer patients and survivors and their families to you know please come in if you if you feel like you have symptoms or whatever or if you already had a pre-existing um, meeting uh, scheduled you know don't cancel it you know, do do what you can to, you know, s- summon up the courage to go, um, because you know, I, you know I hate to I would hate to have people dying or getting really sick simply because they missed an appointment or they didn't see their doctor. That you know that's just an added tragedy to this COVID uh, tragedy. It's it's really you know a really sad byproduct of what's happening, and I I, I just want to urge my fellow patients to go in. Um, you know, by the way, you can do a lot of this telehealth now. As you know, that's that's the new trend. Yeah, doing what actually. you and I are doing right now, Greg. Right. You, know, right. you do that huge. with your doctor too.
1: Is it is, and some telehealth is better than others. And it's very it true. I uh, realize that you know, depending on the the demand that because there's true. a high demand right now that they didn't expect. Um, you know, wait times can be long, but again, some are better than others, but overall, it's a great way to get a consultation without having to travel, without having to go in. Um, you know, I was talking to an author just yesterday and his grandson had a big swollen toe and they went on telehealth and he took a picture on his cell phone and he sent it to the guy over the uh, inner, you know, it's like what we're doing. Yeah. The doctor looked at it and he said, oh, you know, have him soak it in this and then I'll uh, prescribe this uh, antibiotic or whatever he did. And, you yeah. know, it's literally, it's, it's working, right? It is working and it's working quite effectively. And, you know, you talk about, uh, cause we, we haven't really talked about this, but the mental health issues that cancer yeah. patients are dealing with during uh, not just this pandemic, but, you know, hey, look. When you're diagnosed with cancer, no matter yes. what kind of cancer, the first thing that happens is the mind starts to race, uh, and it usually goes toward the negative, right? Yeah. Uh, oh my God! You know, what am I going to do? And obviously, you've been there. My son's been there. I'm blessed not not to have been there. But tell our listeners about it. When you write about this, what yeah. do you find is a common theme that's running through people's mind? And what are you advocating that they do um, that isn't drug related? The last right. thing I'd want to do is give people anti anxiety drugs on top of everything else they're taking. And I know that doctors have a tendency to, you know, just want to prescribe that stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's so many things they can do for their health that don't have to be
2: infused with drugs. Well, that's a great question, Greg. Thank you. And it's it's it is painfully true that among the most common side effects of a cancer diagnosis is anxiety and Mm -hmm. depression and fear. Um, all those things are very real. You know, it's the main thing that happens is you're suddenly, uh, confronted with your mortality, you know, especially like somebody who's your son's age or I was 35. I was young. I was engaged at the time to my now beautiful wife, Gabriella. Um, You know, she could have walked. She could have said, I'm out of here. But she stuck with me through all of it. And, um, you know, she's a big reason why I'm still alive. But the anxiety level, I had never felt anxiety in my life. And actually, um, it's interesting that you bring this up, Greg, because I'm actually um, going to write another book after the Hope book comes out. And after I'm done with the China Project, um, I'm still doing my journalism, but I'm going to write a new book about my mental health experience as a cancer patient when i was when i went through a recurrence uh, when my doctor told me that i was you know the cancer was back for a second time um, i lost it and i'd never had anxiety even during chemo i never really had anxiety like to the level of a panic attack but i lost it i just lost i lost it and i took myself to the er because i just broke down you know and i'm a pretty strong person but you know, this can happen to obviously anyone. Um, and the doctor without really blinking an eye, um, prescribed Ativan, which is one of those benzodiazepine anxiety drugs. It's hard to get off of once you start. Oh my God. Well, that's, that's the story, Greg. So I was going to take it, you know, only for literally for a month or less while I went through all the, the cancer tests, you know, and I do a lot of tests on blood and I don't just do the basic stuff. I, I delve really in far into it to know really exactly, um, what I have, you know, and, and after less than a month, um, I said, okay, it's time to get off these, these, these darn drugs. I don't want to take them anymore. I tried to get off of them. And the next day I had the worst withdrawal, uh, anxiety symptoms I've ever had in my life. I just, it was unbelievable. So I've already learned from all my experiences as, as a patient, my body's very sensitive to medication. Right. It, it usually works on me, but, but, the, but the side effects also work on me sometimes. Uh, and for me, the withdrawal from this benzo, this add of this Ativan drug, was the worst thing I'd ever experienced in my life. It was worse than having cancer. I mm. couldn't get off the drug. So I had to taper down very, very slowly. Um, it's the only way I was going to be able to get off the drug because every time I cut, a little bit, the anxiety just was off the charts. It was a very, very difficult process. It's been 10 years now. I'm looking back on it now. And I, I, I let out a heavy sigh of relief every time I think about it because it's way in the rearview mirror now. But I'll never forget it. And it's been a while. I've been so busy with other things, but it's time for me now because this is so connected to COVID, Greg. The mental, uh, we have a, we have a viral pandemic and we have an accompanying uh, mental health pandemic and it's global. It's worldwide. Virtually everyone in the world because of this, this virus has had a uptake, uh, you know, an increase in anxiety. And you've,
1: you've had to address, have addressed um, the isolation issues uh, because look, even you and I you know we could have gone to a studio and record this but people aren't meeting in studios anymore and right. you know, zoom is the number one factor to meet or teams or whatever the heck people are using these days yes. but but the issue is is that we long for this human connection and isolation and especially a cancer patient they were already isolated enough especially yes. if their immune system is compromised right Definitely. Yes. Uh, they're wearing a mask, you know, they're, they were wearing a mask when they went into the grocery store before right. they were just walking into the grocery store with the, uh, with no hair and a yep. bandana on or something. Right. Right. And so these people in particular and all the others, what's happening with the isolation issue? I mean, you know, do, have you written anything or have you delved into it? Uh, sure. Where I mean, are I, we at?
2: I have written about that and it's, you know, um, I, I sort of look at it optimistically in one sense that what we're doing right now, Greg, you and I, this technology, um, you could be cynical about it. But, and in fact, it is keeping uh, that very thin thread, but it's keeping us together. It's keeping us. Agreed. Agreed. It gives us something to communicate with our yeah. fellow human beings, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know you could be cynical about it and say, God, there's no more personal meetings anymore. But this is the next best thing, if you will. And it's better than nothing. And I, like, I love talking to you. We wouldn't get this opportunity otherwise.
1: I just need my Starbucks coffee cup, you know, it's just, but I'd rather be at Starbucks with two cameras going.
2: (laughs) Oh, I I agree. I agree. I can't argue that. (laughs) No, no, I'm just saying. Yeah,
1: exactly. It is. And, and so the isolation, as you said, you, you were given anti-anxiety medication, Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I look behind you and you've got your treadmill there and you yeah. exercise and you stay in shape. Sure it is. And I think the important thing is, is that this was not only a pandemic, but a health issue. So Big when time. you look at Americans in general, overweight, diabetes, heart condition, now we're not just talking about cancer. We're talking yeah. about add, add everything else in there. Yes. And it, this really needed to be a wake up call for health. Uh, Absolutely Right. Yes. And I, I think that is hopefully the message people are getting because the healthier you are, the higher your immune system is. Yeah. Uh, Jamie knows this folks because he's battled cancer and he recognizes the only way to keep those uh, healthy cells in his body is to have a good immune system. And to have a good immune system means to work out, to do yep. yoga, to do meditation, to do the kind of things that you would normally do, Tai mm-hmm. Chi, find something fun, go play volleyball, walk on the beach, go to Torrey Pines, whatever it is that you have to do. But my point yep. is it's about you staying active, staying healthy, eating right. Yeah. Right. And I yep. know you shifted your whole diet. I guarantee you that because I saw pictures of you before and I see pictures of you today. So mm-hmm. you certainly have been a person who has uh, uh, maintained that. What would you tell people out there listening today about, hey, what am I, if my immune system is compromised, what would you recommend?
2: Well, you know, a lot of people, and I I did write a story literally just about immunocompromised patients during COVID for Healthline. And they were all, because many of them, Greg, actually their, you know, their um, immune system issues predate COVID. So they were in in some ways, they were saying now 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 everyone kind of knows what we go through, and I, I thought that was great because they, they were feeling a little bit more understood, you know, now than they were before. Because when you see somebody when you're healthy, and you see somebody come into a supermarket, you know, and they're pale and they're they're bald and they, whatever, they're, they're a cancer patient and they're not wearing a, a wig or you know whatever, that scares people. Some people are. You know, don't want to look into that light. They want to. They want to turn their head. Now, we're kind of all going through the same sort of um, fears and anxieties and and health issues. So, you know, in a weird kind of way, in some ways, this thing has made it has made people more angry. But in other ways, it's also given people more empathy. I think people understand now what people who have an immune immunocompromised. Uh, body. They, they kind of get it. They sort of understand now. Oh, I see what it's like. It's scary to leave your house, but they, right. but they do anyway.
1: Right. Courageously,
2: they do. They, they live their lives. Right. You know, I haven't been immunocompromised. You know, I've been fighting cancer for 23 years, but I've had years and years, Greg, where I've been fine. You know, I mean, not I deal with chronic pain and stuff like that, but generally speaking, I've lived my life. You know, I've had some rough times two. But overall, I've been fortunate. I can still, you know, up until COVID, I could still go out and basically do most of what I did before, not everything. Yeah, I don't right. surf anymore very much because of the, you know, the the toxins in the, in the ocean.
1: Right. My right, biggest right, tumor right.
2: was in my nasal, nasal pharynx. So I'm a little afraid to swim in the ocean. And that was a big part of who I am too. And I, that was tough. But, you know, you got to make some certain compromises
1: Uh, for your health and, and it's, and it's all based on, you know, your own evaluation of what's best for you, you know, and that's, I think the way we could leave this interview is, you know, look, you've, you've written about this. Uh, People can go to your blog, which, which will uh, direct them to your website. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll also direct them to the places where you've written. We're going to put the new book jacket up. Uh, just so people can see that. The, by the way, I need to let people know the book has not broken yet. It's not out there, but you can write Jamie direct. You'll be able to actually. We'll put his email, and you can just, you know, ping him off when, when, and when the book's ready. He's going to contact you, and uh, you can get a copy directly through you. Correct. Yes. Or, or you'll be able to go someplace and. Uh, either download it or however Jamie's going to set up. Cause they don't know if right now uh, you said you weren't going to put it on Amazon, right? It's, it's no, no, this is right. going to be a
2: freebie to a give freebie. cancer patients for free.
1: Okay. Yes. So it'll be a, it'll be something if they're cancer patients, they can get for free.
2: Anybody. And, well, anybody, anybody who's interested can have
1: it. Right. And sure. any drug companies and people that are listening, you can contact Jamie because this would be a great opportunity for you to team up and actually uh, speak with Jamie about this because he did this with his last book and it was quite successful. Um, so Jamie, I want to thank you for being on the show because it's just been a pleasure having you on and speaking with you uh, for the last 45 minutes about just what your life's been like, about what it's like for cancer patients, about what you're doing as an advocate, about the books that you've written uh, that can help people and especially this new one, um we did notice the other day Jamie and I that I went into Amazon uh is other book is out there and people <laughs> are selling it all editions yes yeah yeah Jamie would prefer that wasn't hap- happening excuse me because the book was meant to be a gift from whatever a leukemia society whoever had it you were supposed to be able to get the book so I get where he's coming Plus from Plus it's old
2: it's dated it's old information now too it's not Right you know. Right,
1: so we're not going to send them there. We're going to send them <laughs> to your website and to your email address, and to get it from you. Any last parting words before we wrap up this interview,
2: Jamie? I'd love, yeah, I'd love to just say one thing, Greg. First of all, it's great to see you again and talk to you. Um, I really appreciate your sensitivity and your intelligence and your insight. I, I love, I love what you do. It really is making a difference. I just wanted to say, with this benzo book that I'm writing, my goal is simply to. Normalize anxiety, if you will, because millions of people have it, and I want I want to make sure that people understand. Some of these pe- some people are still helped by these benzo drugs in the short term, right. but they're not designed for long term use. And I want people to understand that um, I'm not calling for drug companies to take them off the market, but I people need to know because withdrawal from uh, these drugs are it can be worse than an opiate withdrawal. Right. So I want—I just want people to know, um, you know, before they do anything, I want them to be informed. I stupidly just took the drug, and I believed in the doctor, and I didn't question it. That's not how I typically work. So uh, I, I don't want people to do what I did. Um, I'm well, the, you'll, I'm the, yeah. you'll be
1: able to talk to plenty of people out there that are probably on them and oh, trying to get off of them.
2: So I am right now, Greg. It's Yeah, unbelievable,
1: yeah really. it. I'm sure that it's it's one of those things that, you know, it kind of, you know, it numbs you and you don't want to be numbed. You want to live life fully. There's no reason to go compromised mentally down the path while you have cancer. You can still have all your faculties, but being on one of those drugs can really have a huge impact on you. Jamie, Uh pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for your time this morning. I know my listeners are going to love hearing the stories and those of you who are out there We'll make sure that when you go to our blog entry at Inside Personal Growth, you'll be able to get all of Jamie's information, and we'll post this uh, up on YouTube as well. Thanks so much, Jamie.
2: Thanks, Greg.